Ми робимо все, щоб посилити наших воїнів на передовій, наших героїв, які надихають світ тим, як хоробро і стійко захищають свободу України, нашу землю, наші цінності. It was supposed to be a victorious opening move that would set up Russia's spring offensive. But the Russian assault on the city of Vuladar, a strategic hub located at the intersection of the eastern front in the Donetsk region and the southern front in the Zaporizhia region, ended in disaster, illustrating the continued battlefield dysfunction of the Russian campaign. According to the Ukrainian general staff, Russia lost an estimated 130 armored vehicles, including 36 tanks in just one week. And the British defense secretary said a whole Russian brigade was effectively annihilated in the battle for the city, where he said Moscow lost over 1,000 people in two days. Ukraine's successful defense of Vuladar comes as the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion approaches and as Kyiv prepares for its own spring offensive armed with state-of-the-art weapons, including Leopard tanks. So it's been nearly a year since Vladimir Putin launched his war of aggression against Ukraine. In the first, two in the first of two episodes marking that anniversary, we'll look at where the war stands, what we have learned, and where we may be going. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from downtown Washington, D.C. is Volodymyr Dubovic, an associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at Mechnikov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. Volodymyr is currently a visiting professor at Tufts University. Welcome back to the podcast, Volodymyr. Hi, Brian. Good to be here. Good to have you. So as I noted, uh, this is the first of two podcasts marking the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion. And Volodymyr, just to get us started, think back to February 24th of last year. What were your expectations back then, and what surprised you over the past year? Well, there were many expectations and uh, many surprises too. Well, the expectations uh, changed with each new day of the war. And you actually had a lot of, uh, you know, obviously horror and the shock and trepidation earlier in the war when it all started. You didn't know exactly how it going to go. Uh, then you, within days or weeks for sure, uh, if you're Ukrainian, you would understand, uh, first of all, that, yeah, this is indeed a massive invasion. But second of all, on the other hand, Ukrainians are fighting back really well. Uh, so it's, Russian troops are not proceeding with their uh, occupation as far as they probably were hoping to. And therefore, there was this uh, feeling of mobilization anyway, the feeling of resilience, which is still there. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't say, uh, it, would, it wouldn't be fair to say that there was no shock. Uh, that there was no like horror and fear about what's going on, and people obviously millions of people being displaced quickly in the first days of the war. Uh, so with me, you know, I was also wondering like we didn't know how it would go. You know, how would Russian military fare? How would Ukrainians fight back? You know, would that would our heroism and resilience be enough to actually stop the Russian invasion in the works in their tracks or not? So yeah, there were all sorts of like uh, scenarios and guesses and. Uh, trying to understand what happens next and how can I contribute better. Uh, every Ukrainian uh, went through this, like, okay, if even if I'm not in a, on the battleground, in the trenches on the Ukrainian side, what can I do, you know, to help my country withstand, uh, you know, to survive, and uh, what can I help do to help my military to fight, and so on. So 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, thoughts uh, goes through your mind when you when the day like February 24th, 2022 happens. Uh, I mean, uh, there were discussions about what Russians are planning to do. I think at some point of time, we actually had a podcast with you as well, like trying mm-hmm. to decipher, decipher, like, what is Russia up to? Uh, you right. know, grouping, massing all those troops on Ukraine's borders. There were all sorts of views, you know. There was no unanimous, absolutely unanimous uh, understanding that it's definitely going to be a massive invasion. People had other thoughts as well. In Ukraine, actually, in the expert community, the dominating, uh, prevailing uh, opinion was that it's some kind of intimidation campaign, some kind of blackmailing, that Russia would probably not go forward with massive invasion. So people were, of course, mistaken. Uh, now we understand better that what Russia is capable of, of course. So we are thinking not about just this war, but future wars, mm-hmm. uh, because Russia would continue to be a threat. So maybe in the course of our conversation today, we would come back to what can be done, what should be done about better securing Ukraine, providing Ukraine with better security for the coming years. Yeah, and I precisely want to dive into that in the in the second half. Sticking with kind of looking back at a year ago, I mean, the initial the the, the initial Russian plan was for a lightning strike to decapitate the Ukrainian regime, take yes. even a matter of days. Yes, um, we know they had even packed dress uniforms for a right. military parade on the Khrushchev. Did you think in those early days that that was possible? That that Ukraine was effectively going to fall and cease to exist as we know no. it? I uh, I don't think uh, we ever thought that Russia would quickly move into Kiev, but uh, because I realized uh, there were some troops there, and uh, whoever was planning uh, this defense uh, campaign on the Ukrainian side, they understood that Russians would might go after Kiev, and uh, therefore uh, a lot of forces were concentrated around Kiev and the neighborhoods in the northern suburbs of Kiev, and uh, and I thought that Russians would be able to go through quickly. And well, it turned out that they didn't get into those suburbs really into Kiev proper, understanding among among other other things that there will be sitting ducks with a lot of for a lot of Ukrainian. Uh, military units, regular units, but also territorial defense units, uh, because by that time, of course, Ukraine was already flushing with uh, javelins, anti-tank missiles. So uh, for, for the Russian uh, tanks, uh, for the Russian armored tank columns to enter Kiev would be would be a suicide. So that instead they got stuck outside, you know. And then there was this moment when uh, for days and weeks uh, that huge column, really long column, that was outside of Kiev, not too far, mm-hmm. and people were wondering, people were wondering what's next, you know. But at that point of time, it was already clear that something is not going wrong, uh, right for them. Right. <laughs> uh, that some, they've got certain things wrong. Uh, that's not according to the plan. It could not be part of the plan that you stuck all this equipment in one right. place and it's just sitting there you know, waiting for something, not moving anywhere. So, yeah, right. at, at that point of time, we were already receiving, picking this, picking up the signals that, uh, okay, maybe we are have a chance to actually fight back and defend Kyiv and other cities, and uh, maybe we can actually stop that invasion. Maybe they can be even rolled back. Yeah, that convoy was one of the earliest signs that this was not going well at all for Russia. Um, did, did, um, did anything surprise, were you surprised, for example, by the performance of the Ukrainian armed forces? and the underperformance of the Russians? It's a great question. I mean, I'm not a military expert as such. So in terms of Russian military, now we know more than we used to know a year ago. So now we understand where it's coming from, you know, why Russians are not performing too well, why it's happening. It's corruption within Russian military forces. It's a general situation in the country where any creativity is not really welcomed or rewarded. So therefore, uh, you know, you have a bunch of generals who don't care about actual state of uh, shape of Russian military forces. And you have some very 
obsolete way of actually fighting the battle and strategic culture and so on uh, for, for Russia on the battleground. But um, uh, for in terms of Ukrainian military forces, I knew that they would fight back. But yes, I think I might say I was a little surprised pleasantly by the way how successfully they fought back. Apparently, they've learned a lot uh, uh, over 80 years of fighting in Donbass. And now everyone is mentioning this uh, factor shaping in because uh, you know ukrainian military actually a lot of ukrainian military went through donbass at some point of time because ukraine was rotating people there it was a different type of conflict obviously low intensity not a massive invasion and uh, but still it was very valuable experience for ukrainian military then also american training uh, i guess and others brits canadians others coming in and doing some training with ukrainian military apparently paid off uh, because uh, you would have uh, some some very small tactical units behaving in a very creative uh, agile way, uh, being capable of taking and making very important decisions on the ground right there at the moment, unlike Russians who were always waiting for the call to, from a general, you know, right, <laughs> to, to, right. to, make a, to make a single step. Ukrainians were actually moving and doing a lot on their own. So, And now we kind of uh, can, can compile a list explaining why Ukrainian military has been so successful uh, comparing to how people probably thought it's going gonna, gonna to fare in those in those days uh in the when when the war was starting yes i was surprised uh that uh, russian russia met its culminating moment so soon in so many places so except for key i mean besides kiev you also had other places in the south where i worked right. about odessa obviously so they culminated there really quickly you know they stuck near mikolaev tried to go around mikolaev circumvented uh, and but defeated near Voznesensk, north of mikolaev and then uh, that's it. You know, they quickly lost any any power, any potential, any any uh, momentum uh, going forward. And uh, yeah, that was really revealing. Uh, I mean, we all understood that they're still there. Uh, a lot of them with a lot of equipment, a lot of people with arms occupying our land uh, in various places of Ukraine. Uh, but at the same time, it was kind of revealing and shocking to see now in positive way that actually they're not as, that almighty as some people expected. Yeah, no, we always either over or underestimate the Russians. We never really quite get them right in terms of military capabilities. And I mean, the, the Ukrainian armed forces not only successfully defended Kiev, but of course we had the the um, the, the offensive, the successful yes. offensive in Kharkiv and the, uh, the successful offensive in Kherson. You mentioned Odessa, and that is one thing I wanted to discuss with you, uh, your hometown of Odessa. Yes. Uh, earlier in the war, it was a major target for Putin for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, of course, is its strategic value as a port. Um, but also, I think it's more than that. I think Odessa symbolizes something that Putin wants to eradicate, and that is right. Russian speakers who are loyal Ukrainians, right? Um, so I think Odessa kind of symbolized everything Putin finds distasteful about uh, present-day Ukraine, um, but in early in the war, Odessa was under sustained pressure. What were the factors that led Essa, led to Odessa being able to withstand that pressure? And what's the what? It, it seems fairly safe now, but what's the what's the situation in Odessa? We haven't really talked about this in a while. Yeah, well, first of all, yes, I think uh, Putin indeed was going after Odessa, no doubt about it, and that would have been a final point of their offensive in the south. Uh, I guess uh, early on in the war and even before the war started, I mean, February 24th, 
Uh, there were all sorts of leak, uh, leaks and plans and everything, and you would never know like which one is right or not. Uh, do you can you believe it or not? But uh, some were actually saying that Russians might go straight to Odessa, even forego you know Mykolaiv and Kherson, and maybe try and do amphibious landing operation there near Odessa. Mm -hmm. Then we understood quickly that no, it's not going to be the case. Probably uh, they want to do land forces uh, moving closer to Odessa, and then maybe involve navy and some of their military forces in Transnistria, uh, which is an unrecognized uh, republic, pro-Russian republic there in the southeastern Moldova next to Odessa. So, yeah, and uh, Odessa quickly uh, consolidated, solidified their resistance. I mean, the, the military forces there, plus the citizens and activists and territorial defense units worked in sync uh, together uh, in uh, creating all this uh, barriers on the way of Russian troops. They get closer. Um, that the beaches were mined, of course, the sea was mined for the Russian Navy not to be able to get too close. Uh, well, it's only much later that we found out that Ukraine actually possessed already some anti-ship missiles, mm -hmm. the Neptunes. At the very beginning of the war, we didn't know. We actually thought, most of us thought that we don't have Neptunes, that Ukraine wasn't able to produce them in time before the war. Uh, but now we know it's not true, luckily. So, <laughs> And Russians found out the hard way, of course, after their flags ship, the cruiser Moskva, Moscow was yeah. uh, hit and sank and went to the bottom. So so Odessa was really a case of uh, people getting together, the activists, the population, no one wanted to you know, give it away, obviously. And uh, on the contrary, Odessa was uh, collecting tons of humanitarian assistance and sending other places in Ukraine. Uh, when Mykolaiv was under assault, there was a lot of assistance coming from Odessa mm -hmm. to Mykolaiv. For instance, Mykolaiv doesn't have really a fresh water to, you know, drinkable, potable water. So that was organized from Odessa. Uh, a lot of people from both Kherson and Mykolaiv now live in Odessa too, uh, as uh, displaced persons away from intensive mm -hmm. Russian shelling in the more safe environment of Odessa. So, yeah, but, but I mean, of course, a lot of Odessans left too, you know, specifically people with uh, small kids. Uh, they didn't want to risk it. Uh, and there were some cases when Odessa was actually attacked. Mostly the strikes were at the periphery at various installations, infrastructure uh, facilities, uh, oil reservoirs and things like that, airfields. Uh, but there were several strikes, uh, you know, that got to the Odessa directly. So Odessa was spared the kind of uh, destruction uh, that beholden uh, other cities, like uh, many other cities, uh, like definitely Mariupol, but also Kharkiv, Kherson, Mykolaiv, others. You know, but yeah. uh, it didn't have it easy, you know. And of course, uh, now with this recent wave of Russian attacks on the Ukraine uh, energy infrastructure, Odessa and Odessa region actually is in the worst shape in the entire Ukraine. So the, the longest uh, power outages. And when you have power outage, of course, it means also you don't have internet, you don't have electricity, right. you don't have no, nothing, no water supply, no, 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 no heating in your room in the middle of winter. So, so right now Odessa is um, not necessarily in a very good shape, but I mean it's safe, safe from occupation, safe from direct artillery strikes, but struggling a little bit, of course, with uh, with dealing with these power outages, as most of other Ukrainian cities are. Right. And now let, let's kind of think forward now. Um, what, what are your expectations going forward? I mean, there's been this ongoing kind of debate about whether this is going to be a long war or not and whether we should all get ready for a very long war. Um, yeah. There are some optimists who think actually Ukraine can liberate all of its territory by the end of this year. Um, yeah. And there are those that think this is a go this is this war is going to last for years. Uh, how, how are you looking at it? How are you approaching? Yeah. It? 
Well, first of all, I'd like to say that no one really knows. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, people would have some uh, estimates, people would have some ideas and guesses and some scenarios and models, but no one truly knows because there are so many variables, so many unknowns going forward. So whenever someone says, I know exactly what's going to happen in coming months, I say, well, well, I'm skeptical, you know, I'm suspicious. But yes, uh, both sides are accumulating forces for more fighting. That, that one is clear, that war, that war is not abating, that war is not signing, showing any signs of uh, subsiding. So Russia is planning maybe more another offensive, maybe it's already under its way. Uh, they've been talking about them trying to do some offensive, but what do you mean by offensive? Like how big is that offensive? Uh, are they going to just try and take Bakhmut? Are they going to try and then move to Kramatorsk? Would they actually limit all of their active measures on the battleground to trying to take more of Donbass? Or would they actually try to do something in other areas? So we don't know. I mean, can they? I mean, they probably would love to do something elsewhere, but uh, do they have enough forces? Right. Yeah, so that's, out, that's an open question. Same thing with Ukraine. I mean, of course, Ukrainian military has been really, uh, you know, showing, performing heroically. Uh, and, uh, and, and and really valiantly, but at the same time, uh, they're not immortals, you know, invincible. You know, that's just uh, flesh and blood kind of people, human human beings. So they they have been exhausted too by the war, by the year of fighting. Uh, they haven't been too much of a rotation on the Ukrainian side either. So therefore, can we actually defend? Should we defend? Should we try to go on offensive? Should we listen maybe to our American friends who apparently advise us to wait a little, uh, you know, uh, before all this new equipment uh, uh, comes from various Western countries, including U.S. And Ukrainians who are trained on it right now, as we speak, uh, would actually be able to, you know, to, mon to operate it. Uh, and then it would be a really helpful uh, to Ukrainian military during this offensive. If you're Ukraine, if you want to do offensive, like also, where do you go? I mean, do you go actually towards Melitopol and then Mariupol and Azov Sea, trying to cut Russian troops there and uh, interrupt, undermine, disrupt this uh, this uh, corridor, this land corridor? From what, I, from what I've yeah, heard, that's yeah, the most yeah, likely yeah, factor. Yeah, actually. that's probably true. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it really complicates things for Russians in Donbass, but it definitely complicates things for us in Crimea. And it's going to be a lot of psychological effect if Russian troops, if Ukrainian troops are capable of actually cutting uh, the Russian presence there into in two different kind of pieces. Well, the, the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin had a had yeah. a, a press conference the other day yeah. where he said he's that the U.S. is expecting a major Ukrainian offensive in the in the spring, and that the United States and the Allies are going to give it everything it needs in order to conduct that offense. Right. I'm paraphrasing the secretary, yes. of course. But this indicates that the that, 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 that America is pretty much on board for a, for a spring offensive at, at this point. I don't know what discussions were going on behind closed doors on that, but are you yeah. were you picking up that the U.S. didn't want Ukraine to move this spring? No, I'm picking up that you maybe didn't want us to, to move uh, right away, like mm. in the coming weeks. Uh, in oh, the spring, okay. yes. Yeah, in the spring, maybe, yes, uh, uh, you know, like further down the spring, uh, uh, deeper into spring, uh, because, yeah, the idea is to wait. I mean, there'll be a lot of stuff coming in, maybe not tanks necessarily, that'll be later, but at least a lot of armored carriers and so on, more artillery, uh, because some right. of the, one of the several last meetings of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, they've provided a long, impressive list of weapons to Ukraine, uh, you know, just before the tanks decision was made. So when this come in, you know, that would be really important when the new air defense systems come in uh, that Ukrainians are now learning to use, including Patriots, that would be important because people now these days talk about maybe Russia trying to use Air Force 
uh, more intensively than it did uh, in the previous uh, uh, stages of the war. That would mean that we need that air defense uh, as well systems coming from various countries in the West. So that's what I'm picking up. Uh, I think uh, that um, not necessarily Washington can dictate to Kyiv and Ukraine what to do. I mean, I think there is in Washington indeed a lot of appreciation and respect uh, for, you know, for the fact that Ukraine makes decisions for itself. It's their territory, it's their people, you know, it's our land, uh, you know, it's our fate, our destiny, our future. So American can help, but ultimately decisions are being made by Ukrainians. But you have certain channels, uh, and of course, you can advise. And we right. understand that, we understand that Americans were involved militarily, uh, you know, in terms of advising Ukraine, even last year, with Kharkiv and Kherson offensives. Mm -hmm. With intelligence here, sharing as well. Yeah, intelligence sharing, and of course, even providing precise coordinates for targets for HIMARS and so on. And even to the extent that uh, if something, you know, American-made uh, weapon broke, breaks on the, on the battleground, then you have a phone number. If you're Ukrainian military, you call, and there is a guy, American military, sitting somewhere in Germany, and they pick up immediately and they tell you what to do to fix uh -huh. it. So, oh, so, the, so, uh -huh. so the amount the amount of cooperation is absolutely unprecedented. I think that the U.S. Uh, what the U.S. is saying, Secretary Austin is saying, yes, there is understanding. There'll be at least one another major attempt by Ukraine to liberate uh, more of its uh, occupied lands currently occupied by Russia, but. But we'll see. And of course, uh, you know, that uh, uh, there is an understanding that uh, probably uh, the more support should be given. Uh, at the same time, there is also understanding that maybe U.S. couldn't provide that support indefinitely on, on, a, on a level, on a scale. It's been happening in the first year. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're 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 in good shape for the for the next okay. two years, is my okay. guess. Um, until okay. the twenty twenty four election, when then 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 you know we'll see what happens then. Um, and those tanks are going to get there maybe sooner than you think, because I mean, I, I was watching videos yesterday of Ukrainian soldiers training on the Leopard tanks in Poland. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those those might be there sooner than expected. I, I opened the show uh, talking about Vuladar, uh, just as a mm -hmm. way to kind of get into the get into the subject of of the of the anniversary. How important do you think Vuladar was? It, it really looks like the, 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 the Russians took a pounding there. Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, here you also have some sometimes discussions between Washington and Kiev about Vuladar, but primarily about Bakhmut, for instance. So it's no big secret that our American friends are basically uh, saying that, uh, well, Bakhmut is not that important strategically, so maybe it's okay if Ukrainians uh, retreat from there. It's no big deal. So basically, the advice is like, uh, you know, save more of your forces, mm. uh, keep your guy, keep your guys alive for that potential offensive. That's more important to you than keeping Bakhmut. But on Ukrainian side, apparently. There is this political decision being made that we're going to keep defending Bakhmut as long as we can. So, yeah, and with Vuhlidar, yeah, it was interesting that uh, a lot of people, uh, Russia lost there, but that doesn't stop them. So uh, we know that mobilized more people, you know, I've, a lot of people have been dismissive about this mobilization, basically saying, well, but these people, Russia now are freshly mobilized, they're not well equipped, not well trained, they're not motivated. It's probably all true. But still, if you add two to three hundred thousand people on the battleground, if you're Russia, and you, th that provides a lot of pressure on Ukrainians, so I wouldn't be dismissive uh, completely about the results of that mobilization. At least tactically, 
situationally in the region of Donbass, that's a lot of pressure on Ukraine. And that's why we're also losing a lot of our guys near Bakhmut and so on. So I think uh, if the logic uh, of the behavior on the Ukrainian side of the Ukrainian military is to uh, put more Russians through that mid-grinder near Vuhlidar, mm-hmm. Bakhmut and, uh, and Solidar and other places, you know, it's probably working. I mean, except, right. except we're also losing tons of our guys, but they're losing more. But then again, we're in a race against time because Russia's mobilization reserves, Russia's population is bigger than Ukraine. So if they say we lose 100 guys and they lose 500 guys, if you look at it, uh, you know, you might say, oh, that's good for Ukraine. But then, you know, uh, their resources is uh, much bigger in terms of what they can mobilize than in Ukraine population-wise. So we better not lose 100. <laughs> you right. know, we better, we better lo- not lose a single one, but that's not how the big war goes, so that we understand. Yeah, and uh, and and one before we move into the second half to talk about kind of what the world's going to look like when this is over, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Western support. I know you and I have talked about this off mic. There are concerns about the sustainability of the uh, uh, of the Western support. I know you're one of those people who thinks who is who's happy with the level of support that Ukraine's been getting uh, from the United States and Europe um, and, and and the allies. How do you? What are your concerns going forward about the Western support, though? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, about happy, you know, I'm, I was appreciative, let's say. Mm-hmm. And I and I thought that could have been a case that we would be, be given uh, less support. Yeah, that was also realistic because the massive support we are getting from U.S. and other countries. I mean, who knew that? I, I didn't take it for granted. You right. know, uh, apparently, actually, it pays off the work being that been done by this administration, by the administration, White House, in the months coming up to February 24th, right. when the entire coalition was put together and sanctions against Russia were prepared, and even like routes of how you deliver weapons into Ukraine through Europe, through Poland, uh, also been you know outlined, sketched out, you know, so. That was important. And then, uh, you know, the red lines of what you can get for Ukraine if you're U.S. have been shifting all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So initially, like a year ago, you would, if you're U.S., you would say, oh, no, we can't give it to Ukraine. And then a couple of months later, sure, sure, here you go. Yeah, we've <laughs> you had take the same with yeah, the Javelins, yeah, with, the, yeah. with the HIMARS, with the Patriots, everything, with the tanks. Everything. And yes. mark my words, the F-16s yeah. are going to be coming. Yeah, could I, be, I really hopefully. Hopefully. F-16s be coming. Um, yeah, yeah. But are you worried about the sustainability of this? Yeah. Politics right. in Western countries right. is volatile at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, in Europe, of course, it's the weak link, uh, actually, because U.S. is, after all, more motivated, maybe more inclined to help Ukraine more and, and more capable of helping Ukraine militarily and sending some weapons. But, uh, yeah, the stability, you know, the people begin to question, like, how long this war could be going, uh, what's the end game. Uh, I would prepared for protracted protracted war what if it's for years can we actually sustain that kind of a level of assistance like many many tens of billions of dollars both in weapons supply and financial assistance uh, to ukraine uh, obviously there is one uh, segment uh, politically within one of the parties in us which is questioning necessity and the significance and uh, and the needfulness for that support to ukraine I think that they are still kind of minority, mm-hmm. definitely in, on, uh, you know, in the Congress, uh, you know, like in the House. But, but uh, who knows what's going to happen next? I mean, uh, so now, right now, of course, it's also a lot of politicization of uh, the assistance to Ukraine, meaning that uh, uh, if Biden supports Ukraine, then automatically, if you're against Biden, you want to be critical. You say, right. oh no, we are we're against. So that's one of the <laughs> simple explanations why why they're doing that. But there are other explanations too. So can they actually, you know? halt assistance to Ukraine right now? Probably not. 
can they create problems and complications and delays? They probably can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but as I say, the 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 actual year uh, to keep in mind is 2024. So we'll see. What about the public support? Right now, it's it's massive still. But also, we look at uh, public opinion polls, and we're short, we're seeing a slight. Slight erosion, decline, decline of support. Yeah. So, so therefore, I mean, uh, as you say, I agree with you for the time being, for the, for the near term, midterm, maybe even uh, we're okay, probably. But if you think about, uh, you know, longer perspective, and then it's problematic and Putin knows that and he is ready to be patient and try and outweigh everyone. You know, and wait till the fatigue in the West about supplying Ukraine with assistance uh, would actually get stronger. And then, uh, you know, if Ukraine is left alone vis-a-vis Russia, then it's going to be his moment to con- right. make another make another move. Yeah, no, that's that's certainly what he's he's counting on. This week, Slovakia, the Slovak Parliament, declared Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. Several countries have done this already do you think moves like this are are helpful um there's there's talk of this in the u.s it's something only the state department can do um there i know there's some 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 movement in congress to, to kind of yeah. recommend that they do so but like do you think see things like this declaring russia yeah. a state sponsor of terrorism perhaps indicting putin shoigu and others for war crimes um Gerasimov, et etc do you think those things are helpful from the perspective of ukraine mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure if they can actually help Ukraine achieve the victory. Uh, I actually do think that uh, the, the future of the war will be decided on the battleground. Uh, but symbolically, there will be steps in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Because indeed, this absolutely, completely unprovoked, massive genocidal in- invasion, uh, you know, coupled with massive war crimes, is something that shouldn't be forgotten, should be forgiven. Uh, we shouldn't turn a blind eye to it, of course. So, uh, therefore, maybe... Maybe. And uh, if uh, uh, designating Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism would give more levers uh, to provide more sanctions and maybe enforce sanctions better, that would also be helping. But what we hear from administration, the White House, they say we don't need it, really. We have everything we need, the leverage uh, to help Ukraine and punish Russia. So uh, we don't need it. We actually need to have continue to have this dialogue and open line with Moscow. Right. Just That's the thing. Yeah. 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 So if we just designate them a state sponsor of terrorism, uh, we might kind of under, undercut uh, that direct line with Moscow. So, so there are arguments on both sides, uh, symbolically, morally speaking, clearly, there is a case to do it and go forward. And that's what you see from Congress. And that's why Ukrainians say, oh, please do it. But if your administration, if you're actually uh, carrying out this massive program of assistance to Ukraine, you would say, well, I mean, we're not into symbolism. We're actually trying to get to Ukraine what really is mattering right, right now, what is what is meaningful, that is weapons. All right. Well, that's a good that's a good place to shift gears. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and speculate about how this war might end and what the security architecture of Europe will look like when it does. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington Fowl Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from downtown Washington, D.C. is Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at Mechnikov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies, Volodymyr is also a visiting professor at Tufts University. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Google, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, 
Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for the time being, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. завжди базує свою зовнішню політику на повазі до усіх учасників міжнародних відносин. Усі нації є рівними і заслуговують на незалежне життя, на мирну співпрацю з іншими народами. So you have been giving a series of talks around Washington about what a post-war settlement and, a, and the post-war security architecture will look like in Ukraine. Can you share some of this with us? Sure, there's a lot of demand and interest and people are trying to look beyond this war or the stage of this war at least. Um, both in Ukraine and outside of Ukraine, there is this discussion, there is this understanding that Russia would continue to be a threat to Ukraine, a mortal threat perhaps. Uh, people you know, operate under the assumption that Russia would never be comfortable with having a Ukrainian independent, viable, sovereign, democratic state next door to it. So that would also be some kind of irritant and they would might do what they did uh, since February 24th and doing right now, they might do it in the future. So we need to draw some lessons from February 24th because Ukraine fought back valiantly but uh, still wasn't quite well prepared. So what do you do? I mean, uh, mm -hmm. if you're Ukraine uh, with other allies, uh, to improve situation next time over. Uh, well, one thing, of course, that Ukraine should definitely not maybe abandoning the idea to, of joining NATO one day. This idea, by the way, is now very popular with Ukrainians. If you look at the public, if you do the political elites, uh, you know, Ukrainians uh, really like this idea. They now understand what it means to be alone vis-a-vis -vis Russia, uh, you know, being in that uh, limbo state, in that gray zone, you know, against very strong enemy. And therefore, people now understand uh, what is what it is, the collective security uh, arrangement. Uh, but at the same time, there is understanding, of course, that uh, this might not happen anytime soon or quite soon enough. So because there being some member states within NATO, even among those sympathetic to Ukraine, who would say, well, probably we couldn't do it, we shouldn't do it, that would be definitely annoying Russia and inviting Russia for more aggression although, against although Ukraine. At, yeah, at yeah. this point, should we really yeah. be worried about annoying Russia? <laughs> yeah. After everything that's going on well, last year. Well, some people still do. If you listen to I Macron, he, he's saying, like, uh, well, let's respect Russia, let's not humiliate Russia, uh. let's uh, take Russia's security concerns into account. Uh, you know, it's a great culture and so on. Uh, let's have a dialogue uh, line open and so on. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, at the same time, we need to work with NATO, continue. We're doing it right now with alliance in general, but also with particular countries, member states that are supplying Ukraine with assistance. Uh, uh, you can call it a coalition of willing. Uh, there'll be some countries uh, after the war that will be continuing willing to supply Ukraine with assistance. So Ukraine is in many ways uh, a country which is a de facto member, quotation marks, because of course we're not member formally, but the assistance, amount of assistance to cooperation, which is happening between NATO countries on one hand in Ukraine and the other is something else, you know, it's out of that league. It's never happened to any, any candidate state or any uh, ally state or partner state or anything like that before that. So... So we're basically already having Ukrainian military, you know, proving that they are uh, capable of contributing to Euro-Atlantic security in a major way. Uh, 
you know, they're combat ready. They they actually can stop Russia in the tracks. That's exactly what you need if you're NATO, you know, to to secure your eastern flank. Also, Ukrainian military has been quickly mastering all these uh, different weapons types mm -hmm. uh, provided by NATO. So it took uh, countries that joined NATO before years actually to do that but if in ukrainian case we don't have a luxury so therefore ukrainian military right. is trying I mean, to ukraine is yeah, yeah, right now with yeah, NATO, yeah yeah we're doing remarkable. it within weeks and months so <laughs> yeah so there is interoperable yeah i mean yeah and the final thing is probably that we can still talk about some security guarantees there's been a lot of talk about that last last year you know what countries will be willing like what kind of guarantees what ukraine needs what they can actually give it to us because of course ukrainians don't want to have another budapest memorandum from 1994 which was offered only offered assurances and vague ones and not any particular clear viable binding committing guarantees that's what ukraine needs so so we're in the beginning of that discussion i mean uh, where it leads us we'll see it also it also will be affected by how the war ends and when it ends right and we yeah it, it, a lot of it is going to be affected by how the war ends and i think including up to and including nato membership for ukraine right but i right. see kind of three possibilities in terms of Ukraine security after war, the war. The, the most desirable, of course, is the NATO option. Uh, short of that, you alluded to some kind of set of bilateral or multilateral security guarantees that I, right. I would assume the United States and, and the United Kingdom would have to be involved in that to get yes. the kind of guarantee that you're going to want. Um, I've often thought maybe major non-NATO member, major non-NATO ally status um, for the yes. U.S. granting uh, Ukraine that. And then the other thing that we, you and I have discussed this is uh, the, the, uh, what we call the Israel option, uh, right. turning Ukraine into Israel, a country that is more than capable of completely defending itself against everybody in its neighborhood. Is that a viable option? Yeah. Well, there are many others, as you mentioned. Yes. Uh, first of all, with NATO, we can still work and we can work out something which would be de facto NATO plus Ukraine uh, framework or, or format. Uh, in terms of uh, guarantees, yes, uh, uh, it would definitely have to in, in, include both U.S. and U.K., but uh, it's a long discussion. We only earlier uh, in this in early stages of the discussion, like what can be done, what kind of guarantees, how binding, because what Ukraine needs is something like Article 5 of the NATO's founding treaty, Washington Treaty. Uh, can other countries actually give us such strong, vibrant, robust guarantees? I'm not so sure about it. So, But uh, uh, MNA, a major non-NATO ally status, yeah, probably a good idea, but at the same time, if you think about uh, the fact that among the uh, U.S. Uh, major non-NATO allies, you have countries like Thailand and Brazil and others like, I don't know, I don't know, is it something that you, what Ukraine needs, really? Uh, finally, about Israel. Well, uh, I think it, even all of the Israeli ally enemies in the region uh, taken together are still not as strong enough as Russia vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. So it still probably needs a f even higher level of preparedness mm -hmm. and, and ability to fight back. Also, uh, there is unprecedented long-term, uh, many decades uh, long uh, commitment to Israeli security by the United States. Are we going to have that in the case of Ukraine? I mean, we're now talking about... Oh, yeah. like, that, would, that would absolutely have to be a necessary component. Yeah, a yeah, year or option. two or three. You said we will see in the coming couple of years, we'll see what happens in 2024. With, with Israel, that's, that will be out of question. Like, of course, right. you, you will continue assisting Israel. So, yeah, we'll see. I don't think there is any precedent out there which is kind of ready for Ukraine to take and use. 
as a prescription, but we might use some experience from this and that case and uh, pieces, bits and pieces here and there, and then come up with some kind of solutions. I mean, another thing that's being decided right now, it's, it, first and foremost, of course, it's Ukraine's future and Ukraine's security. But what I see also being decided right now is the future security map of Europe. Yeah. Um, um, we're moving into a Cold War situation with Russia. That's clear. Right. But where are those lines going to be? Right. Where's the border yeah. going to be between East and West in this in this new situation? Right. And I think and this is one of the reasons why I actually think the chances of NATO membership are a lot better than a lot of people. Other people think is because after this war, do you really want to leave Ukraine in that gray area again? I mean, I'm not sure that's a good idea. I think um, some people I'm, I think some people would be OK with that, frankly. Mm. You know, I'm not sure that everyone in Europe would be agreeing with you right now. And a lot of people would say, like, OK, that's long uh, running feud that they have between Ukraine and Russia. It's not our war. OK, we helped Ukraine. We did what we can. We cannot just, uh, you know, subordinate all of our actions to that one priority of securing Ukraine. Uh, you know, is Russia going to actually invade other countries outside of Ukraine? A lot of people in Europe don't know the answer to that. A lot of would say would be dismissive and say, no, well, Russia is completely preoccupied with Ukraine. So no reason to believe they're going to go into Baltics or, say, Poland or Romania. You know, so I, I, I'm not necessarily seeing the readiness, uh, systemic readiness of Europe, for instance, to be into this new Cold War. Uh, there is a wake-up call. There is some understanding that Russia is a problem, is a threat. Uh, there is some understanding that uh, the business as usual with Russia is probably not going to be possible. But is it really hitting, uh, you know, the, the, the message from Biden that which he delivered actually almost a year ago in his Warsaw speech, but which could really be compared to Fulton's speech by Churchill at, at the beginning of the older Cold War times. Like, okay, guys, we're in this new environment. We need to be together. We need to be getting ready for this Cold War times. In Europe, I don't see it. I mean, definitely there is a disconnect between many countries. Uh, some would be maybe agreeing with Washington. Others would disagree. You know, there is no consensus about this being a long-haul systemic confrontation with Russia and them being willing to be on the one side and, and, and contributing to what they have to contribute. I mean, I think anybody that doesn't see that is fooling themselves. Uh, you mentioned President Biden's speech in Europe last year. He's going to my, – my, my, yes. my understanding is he's going yes. to Warsaw for the one-year anniversary of the invasion. I'll be, be, I'll be wondering if there's going to be any major policy announcements made during that trip. I'm sure it's going to be a very closely watched speech, no? Right. Well, I don't know. Uh, what can what else can you announce, really? Uh, I mean, if it's just a new type of the weapon, maybe those uh, F-16s, uh, that could be the case, or maybe not. Uh, maybe just a, a, a talk, you know, rallying everyone, a pep talk, really, uh, that, well, that we can, should continue supporting Ukraine. It's far from over, guys. You know, we need to keep our ranks close and everything like that. And, of course, there is a high chance, I guess, of Zelensky meeting Biden there again and other leaders. Yeah, so I guess the symbolism of it uh, is still meaningful, you know. I mean, of course, it's not just about what exactly Ukraine gets uh, in terms of weapons uh, uses against Russian troops, but also the symbolic support is meaningful. You know, the, the, mm. the, 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 the what you see on TV uh, you know the, the the optics of it. I was looking. I was looking for that word. The optics right, of it is actually, right, right. Is actually significant. You know, like uh, uh, Biden coming to and for American leadership, amazing things happening in the last year. I mean, we didn't see anything like this even remotely in the, in the, for many decades, and now we actually see how America can be. Uh, uh, providing that leadership uh, around the world and how that leadership is required 
right. Europe would be how Europe would be in a much much weaker situation if not for the consolidating role of American diplomacy. Mm. All right, and the last thing I wanted to discuss with you is something I actually know you work on quite a bit, and that's Black Sea security. Um, this yeah. is actually something. I am planning to do a podcast down the road on this that I hope you'll join for. I don't know if you've seen the excellent new report that Jeff Jeffrey Menkoff authored uh, for uh, it's a joint report put up by CSIS and the oh, National Defense University. Uh, it's okay. a quite a good report. So I was going to okay. basically have him on down the road, and it'd be good, sure. maybe good to have you join us uh, to discuss that report. Um, but for now, great. I just wanted to I just wanted to touch on this now because this okay. is actually a, it's an under it's an understudied aspect of all this, and that's Black Sea security. How has the war actually impacted Black Sea security, and how do you see that going yeah. forward? Well, thanks. First of all, thank you for flagging that report. I would love to take a look. I know Jeff Mankoff of personally, and I'll be happy to look at the report. Uh, yeah, people now pay more and more attention uh, to the Black Sea security. We've been paying tons of attention to it for years, if not decades. <laughs> Basically, being in Odessa on the, on the Black Sea coast, right. for, for sure. Also, being here visiting Professor Tufts last semester, I, I taught a course. Uh, about the Black Sea region of security. So there is a growing demand to know more what's going on there. And even uh, shortly before February 24th, actually, Secretary Austin was in the region and he stopped in Tbilisi and Kyiv and Bucharest, you know, three kind of major allies in the region. And I basically quote him, you know, uh, saying that American national interests require stronger U.S. presence and stronger role in the Black Sea region. That's something that was never said like this by anyone on that level, you know, from U.S. in the previous years and decades. So uh, we'll see. The, the region is enormously affected. First of all, you have some, you know, hostilities technically there. Uh, you know, even since, even since uh, 2014, when Crimea, of course, was occupied by Russia, uh, you had uh, the sea mined. You had all these missiles flying. Now you have aerodromes. You have naval drones, you know, traveling across the sea. Uh, like I said, the mines in the sea sometimes moving and being caught and, and you know, uh, in the water outside mm -hmm. of Ukraine and Romania, even as close as almost like Bosporus and Istanbul. And uh, so that's a problem uh, for the region. And then if you remember about the blockade, you know, the blockade uh, of the trade, uh, uh, that the, how Ukrainian Black Sea ports were blockaded, uh, blocked by Russian Navy, that's another thing. So everyone in the region is very anxious uh, and trying to understand what's going to happen next. There is increased volatility for sure in the region. Uh, people trying to maneuver and take some positions on this or that uh, issue. Uh, everyone is trying their own way. You know, Turkey, for instance, extremely important uh, country in the region and powerful player, kind of sitting on the fence in many ways and trying to do this careful balancing act. You know, keeping line open to both Kiev and Moscow. Others doing their own thing. So, but uh, clearly, there is absolute lack and absence of any stability or security to speak of right now in the Black Sea region. Everyone is terrified. And people will be looking for some solutions. And when the war is over, depending on how it ends, uh, countries in the region would be actually probably thinking about new formats uh, to provide for more security in the region. Well, yeah, I mean, I've always looked at the Black Sea. If you look at it on the kind of the surface and you look at it superficially, it looks like a NATO lake, right? Um, yes. You have, but, but then if you look a little closer, 
it right. doesn't look so much like a NATO lake because, as you pointed out, Turkey is uh, not exactly reliable on security issues there um, and is a bit wobbly. Bulgaria, likewise, right? Romania is mm. solid. Romania is solid. Georgia is in an ambiguous situation yes. right now. Yes. Ukraine is at war. Um, right. So how this war ends is going to really determine what the security of the Black Sea is going to look like going going right. forward. Right. Um, right. Anything you want? Anything you want to add before we wrap it up for the week? Yeah, on that particular last point of yours, yes, I mean, of course, uh, instead of NATO Lake, uh, when Russia started that aggression, we were uh, as ever close as, uh, to the Russian Lake, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what Russia expected to do, completely crush anyone else, you know, the neutralize uh, Turkey, uh, crush Ukraine, dominate uh, naval- navally. But that's not what's going on. Uh, in fact, they actually in a very difficult situation with their Navy, but kind of hiding from Ukrainian missiles and drones. So, yeah, I think that we do be a need to think uh, strategically about new formats uh, of uh, security for the Black Sea region, just like for the Baltic as well. And you mentioned previously, for instance, some ideas earlier in the war uh, from UK uh, to have, like, say, UK, Poland, Baltics and Ukraine in another some kind of a format. So in addition to this uh, broader, uh, comprehensive Euro-Atlantic security structure where NATO dominates, obviously, we can still think about smaller, you know, more more tactical kind of regional security alliances as well. Maybe revive the intermarium idea. Yeah, something like, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's never never quite died. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we'll wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington Dowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from downtown Washington, D.C. has been Volodymyr Dubovic, an associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at Mechnikov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. Volodymyr is also a visiting professor at Tufts University. Volodya, thanks for an enlightening discussion and making us all a lot smarter. Thank you so much, Brian. It's always a pleasure to be on your podcast. Oh, always a pleasure to have you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.